This time, Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven, is going extra orbital. This podcast finds truth in fantastic stories, and we apply this truth to the real world that our captain, Jesus Christ, calls us to serve. I am E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven. And I'm Zachary Russell, but the crew of the Ares 10 spaceship calls me Zach. This is episode 15, where we explore the science fiction novel Oxygen and more from Randall Ingermanson. The big idea of Oxygen is... What if NASA finally launched for Mars, but one astronaut was a saboteur? Now, this is such a great topic because we're all waiting for someone to get to Mars. And I just can't imagine how terrible that would be if the ship blew up and something really went sideways. But uh, Lorehaven recently reviewed Oxygen and its best of Christian fantasy story. You can get that story exclusively in the free Lorehaven magazine issue, the spring 2020 issue. Just subscribe for free at lorehaven.com. Now, let's explore Oxygen. I read this science fiction story, Zach, uh, and its sequel, actually, The Fifth Man. They both released in the early 2000s. It was one of the few uh, Christian-made science fiction projects you could get at that time. And this is still an awesome story from Randall Ingermanson and John B. Olson. Although we'll focus on Oxygen in this episode, watch the podcast feed for Fantastical Truth for a bonus feature. We also spoke with Randy Ingermanson about his return to his aspiration to write Tom Clancy-style thrillers set in first-century Jerusalem. His brand-new Crown of Thorns series of historical fiction launched this year, and it follows the biblical quest of the greatest hero of all time. That will go up as a podcast bonus episode. So let's explore a little bit of that Oxygen review. I actually wrote that myself for the Lorehaven Spring 2020 issue. Quote, once every two years, Mars veers closer to Earth, and at about the same rate, the red planet orbits back into the news. Usually this happens when NASA launches another probe, or SpaceX founder Elon Musk insists his latest rocket-related antics really will someday send humans to colonize other worlds. For Christian speculative fans, however, a minor Martian invasion occurred in 2001 with the publication of Oxygen. This sci-fi thriller from John B. Olson and Randall Ingermanson followed the first human mission to Mars starting in the year 2012. In this now alternate history, there was no Curiosity probe, no Olympic Games or presidential election hogging the headlines, and no grand promises for amazing NASA missions followed only by budget cuts. Instead, readers joined the Ares program in progress to send a four-member team of actual people to Mars. End quote. A little bit later in the review, I say, quote, Despite Oxygen's then-futuristic starting year, the books don't feel like sci-fi. That's by design, the authors conclude. For humans to reach Mars, their quote, technology is not an issue, most of what we need exists right now, and the rest is well within our grasp. End their quote, page 366. Still plenty of factors prevent this journey. Christians wanting to explore harder science fiction set in our own world might empathize. In theory, we have all we need to explore more Christian-made sci-fi realms for God's glory. Yet, until our crafts get faster and better, Oxygen and the Fifth Man will help satisfy this yearning. End quote. All right, now let's go speak with the architect of this Martian mission himself. Randy Ingermanson is the award-winning author of six novels, all written at the intersection of Science Avenue and Faith Boulevard. He earned a Ph.D. in theoretical physics from UC Berkeley and would love to travel back in time to first century Jerusalem. 
So far, the closest he has come has been working on an archaeological dig on Mount Zion, right in the heart of the city of God. I would add that uh, when he's not in first century Jerusalem, uh, at least for me personally, uh, he has been uh, overseeing the only mission to Mars uh, so far, at least that uh, I've been able to enjoy in fictional form. And of course, he's the author of the new series called Crown of Thorns. We're going to get into that as well as a flashing back to the Eris 10 mission that never was. Randy, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me, Stephen. It's been it's great to uh, to talk with you again, Zach. It's great to meet you. Nice to have you. Yeah, for me, it's a reconnection. Uh, I think I was a hopefully it was an early adopter of a Randall Ingermanson fanboy after reading uh, some of his science fiction back in the early two thousands. So, Randy, we've already asked you what is your name. I would like to ask what is your quest and what is your favorite color. What is my quest? I don't know. I, I figured out my life theme not too long ago, which is that I'm a uh, misfit trying to change the world. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but that's that's kind of what I am. What is my favorite color? I'd say uh, blue. I was going to say ultraviolet just to, to pull your chain, but we'll, let's go with blue. <laughs> that's a good uh, science answer. Uh, so, Randy, here's our evergreen question. And actually, it's a two-parter. How did you discover fantastical stories as a reader? And then how did you start writing them? I think I started reading pretty crazy stuff early on. I, I, I really started reading it as an adult my second year in college. Okay, so in a space of about three weeks, I saw the first um, first Star Wars Episode episode four now, uh, nice. which just kind of blew me away. I was walking around in a daze for uh, a couple mm. of days at least, just in that universe. Okay, awesome. and then shortly after that, I discovered the Lord of the Rings series. And mm. okay, I was a I was a college sophomore studying math and physics. Okay, and I was starting to get a little bit um, started feeling like. I've been reading the Bible all my life and, you know, it's all about God and people and stuff. And now we're learning mm -hmm. about vector spaces and these spaces are empty. And where is God in all this? And I think that what Lord of the Rings did for me was to bring it back to, you know what, there is room in this universe for a lot of things besides flat, empty vector spaces. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I really, you know, credit, you know, those two, the, the Star Wars movie the first one and uh, Lord of the Rings for making me again interested as I had been as a kid in story and crazy stories. Mm. And then how did you start writing them, uh, writing your own fantastical stories? Sometime in the early eighties, it's probably before you guys were born. Uh, so I was in grad school and I got it into my head uh, well, I was, I was reading books on apologetics. I was trying to understand, you know, what it is that I really believe. You know, you, you're raised in a, in a Christian environment. You go to a Christian high school. You go to a Christian college. And then you go off to UC Berkeley. That's a, that's a pretty steep transition yeah. right there. And so I was trying to figure out, you know, where I fit into the, the universe of beliefs. And, um, you know, do I believe in God or not? Okay, I have to decide now. I can't just by default be, you know, who I was raised to be. I have to make my own decisions now. I started, you know, asking, you know, how do we know what we know? 
about God. And I started studying apologetics and I started learning a lot of really interesting things. Uh, now, I don't think apologetics is the, the final word on stuff, but I started, you know, I discovered the world of biblical studies and I realized this is really cool, interesting stuff that I never learned in mm. Sunday school, or actually I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. I never learned it in Sabbath school, okay? I didn't mm. learn this stuff growing up. Uh, and I was also reading spy novels, you know, John Le Carre and uh, Robert Ludlum and mm. Ken Follett, Tom Clancy. And I decided at some point there, I want to write, I want to be the Tom Clancy of first century Jerusalem fiction. Mm. Like now, that it. doesn't make any sense at all. That's actually a very stupid thing to say in one sense, because there's no market for Tom Clancy novels set in first century Jerusalem. <laughs> ask, ask anyone in publishing in the 1980s. They would tell you that. But that's that was my vision, starting in probably, I'm going to guess, 1983. Cool. Well, I found you in the early 2000s, I believe, when you and John B. Olson had released a science fiction novel. Uh, called Oxygen. Uh, that, however, was not your first book. Your first book was called Transgression, and that was about uh, Israeli scientists who had developed a, a very limited means of time travel, and our heroes, Rivka and Ari, end up uh, in the first century Jerusalem. So not only putting uh, maybe a little of your theoretical physics degree to work there, but also going to that favorite spot, first century Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the origin of that story? And uh, you know, obviously, at least uh, for, for a while there, that had been published, and it, uh, it's led to more of your first century styled stories from there on out. Yeah, well, I had been trying for you know probably 10 years or so to write that novel set in first century Jerusalem, and I was just striking out over and over again. And I, I talked to a, a woman at a writer's conference who I respected, and she said, uh, you know, maybe you should think about... Um, uh, using your science somehow in this rather than just uh, just trying to write a novel set in first century Jerusalem because you've got science credentials, which which I do. OK, so I, it, it occurred to me about them that I had uh, an idea stacked away somewhere about a time travel uh, novel. I had read uh, Diana Gabaldon's novel Outlander years before, and I had an idea for a time travel novel you know, to first century Jerusalem. So I started working on that. I took that to um, a conference and I got really good feedback. And very quickly, uh, uh, Harvest House wound up buying that book. And lo and behold, suddenly I'm published as a novelist. So I've you know, accomplished my life dream here. Hmm. Uh, so that's, that's how the time travel thing started. I was just trying to use what I had, which was, you know, the physics background to get where I wanted to go, which was, you know, first century Jerusalem. And from there, of course, uh, you and, uh, Olson wrote, uh, that, uh, the science fiction novel oxygen in, uh, which was published in 2001. And that's how I found you. You all uh, right. later had a sequel to fifth man the next year. Uh, one thing I always appreciated about that story, and we alluded to that in the, the Lorehaven magazine review of the best of Christian fantasy, I, I grouped that in that list. And it's hard for me to describe whether it's hard science fiction or uh, you know, a little bit softer because the story emphasizes not only the, the mission architecture, and it feels very true to life, even for what is now an alternate history of NASA-led uh, mm -hmm. Mars, uh, not colonization, but that mission to Mars. 
Uh, what was the origin of that story? And I mean, uh, how did y'all capture that balance of the, you know, the human relationships, especially with Bob and Valkyrie, some of that apologetics in there as well. And some of his questions, particularly about uh, God versus science and such. Uh, how did that story come to be? Well, I had met John uh, at uh, this writers' conference, the Mount Hermon Christian Writers' Conference in 1996, and we became really good friends. And then, you know, over the course of the next few years, I sold a couple of books, I sold a nonfiction book, sold a novel, and John was still trying to get something sold. And we were talking one day on the phone, and I says, uh, you know, "Send me a list of." The, the, the books you're working on it, because it seems like you're a little fragmented here. It seems like you're working on two or three. So he emailed me a list of 10 books he was working oh, on. There was a young wow. adult. There was uh, women's fiction. There was a science fiction novel. There was some fantasy stuff. It was just all over the board. <laughs> I says, John, I called him up. I says, John, 10 is, is too many. Actually, two is too many. You need to be working on one novel. If somebody held a gun to your head and says, you must work on only one of these 10, which would you work on? And he says, oh, I do number four. And I looked at number four and it was, you know, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. That was all he had written. I says, well, what's that? What's that about? And he says, well, it's about an explosion on the way to the uh, the first human mission to Mars that leaves the crew of four with only enough oxygen for one of them to survive to the red planet. And I says, John, that's a great idea. That's a fantastic idea. I wish I had ideas like that. That is brilliant. Write that book. And then he says, well, I will if you'll co-author it with me. Mm. <laughs> and that had not occurred to me, but I just on instinct says, okay, let's do it. So I says, raise your hand. He says, Okay, I mean, we're talking on the phone. He, he can't see him. I said, raise your hand. And I says, now shake. And so we shook hands across <laughs> 500 miles of space. And I says, good social distancing. There. Yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> let's write this book together. Now, I didn't know I I didn't know at the time that this was, you know, a bad branding idea, because I was already writing one type of novel. And suddenly I'm writing a second type. I, I didn't know that. But I knew that was a brilliant idea. It was John's idea. And I says, look, you're the lead author. And we kind of made a deal, which is if we cannot make a successful partnership here as co-authors, this is your story. I'll back out. You own, you own the story. If there's, if we have major disagreements, you get the final word on it. it you know, because a majority, you know, what is a majority out of two people? A majority is whatever opinion John has. So that was kind of the <laughs> deal. And I just, thought it was a great privilege and an honor to be asked to work on this this book with him. And so we did. And we, you know, we wrote the story. We had, you know, issues with, with you know, how do you mechanically write a book when there are two authors? Uh, uh, but we had email and we had, we both had Microsoft Word and we made it work. It was challenging. It took a lot of work. I did a boatload of research. So you, you talked about, you know, the hard science elements of it. Yeah. Uh, I did, I read every Mars novel I could find that had been read in the, uh, written in the nineties. I read, you know, all the books by NASA people about the various missions to the moon, uh, you know, the, the, the history of the space, uh, 
effort in the 60s and the 70s, the 80s. Uh, and I wanted to make it really accurate, that there would, we would not say anything that was factually incorrect. Uh, but at the same time, you know, both John and I, yeah, we're both, he's a biochemist, okay? That's his PhD. My, my PhD is physics. We're hard scientists, but we're people too. And we really wanted it to be have strong characters, have a, have make it be a relational book. Because John's insight was this, you know, uh, he's you know I think we actually wrote this in the proposal. This was John's word. He says, "Oxygen strong enough for a man, but made for a woman." <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes, uh, which was one of the uh, deodorant commercials from that time. Um, I think. Well, as a man, I feel that that was an accurate summary. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, John just had great, great story instincts. Um, so that's that's how it happened. So were, were you familiar with Kim Stanley Robinson series, the yes. Red Mars? Mars, Blue Mars, okay. Green Mars, yes. So I, I grew up in the 80s, but then in the 90s, one of my best friends was reading that series, my friend David. And he told me all about it. And I actually have a copy of Red Mars. I haven't read that, but I've read Robinson's newer books like Aurora and it's you know his books are amazing in that they're so science driven and just incredible world building but to be honest I feel like they're kind of lacking on characters and just yeah. just interesting kind of story elements so I I really like your emphasis on story and characters yeah people are what matter in in fiction yeah. and I I read Absolutely. Red Mars and I just found it so depressing because these people were I, I I had a hard time relating to them, honestly. Now, the I world don't even remember was, them. Yeah, the the world yeah. building was absolutely fantastic. Yes, <clears throat> yeah. I, I can you know I can great. see I can see the ship in my head that he wrote about in Aurora, but I can't really remember the people in it. So I don't recall the ship. Uh, the one element I remember, and again, I only read Red Mars. Uh, I didn't get to the uh, the other colors on that spectrum. Yeah. I remember all of the math that he did to figure out what would happen if the space elevator collapsed and exactly how it would fall to the surface, what the damage would be, where it would wrap around. Uh, I remember there was a lot of complicated uh, messaging there, a lot of formula, but I don't remember any of the people at all. Uh, I actually think that Ben Bova's Mars book got a little bit closer to making memorable characters uh, yes. than even uh, Robinson's first. So one of the other elements you mentioned was all the space background. Uh, Robert Zubrin, if I can pronounce that right. Zubrin, you know, he has yeah. A, Zubrin, yeah. I, actually, I'm, I read a lot of his stuff uh, nowadays. and But of course, a lot of things have shifted since the 90s and the early 2000s. Now we've got private companies like SpaceX. They want to put humans on Mars. You know, I, Elon Musk talks about making humanity multi-planetary. And there's that iconic image of the uh, Tesla Roadster that he sent up that <laughs> is now orbiting beyond Mars. And he, you know, talks about in, a self-sustaining city on the red planet. But what do you think about these new developments? You know, I'll be honest. I haven't really kept up with all that. Uh, we did go to like the second Mars Society conference in Boulder, Colorado back in, like, I think the summer of 2000 or something. And Elon Musk was there. I think he was one of mm. the keynote speakers or it was a major speaker there. Yeah, I, I have not really continued to follow that because uh, Mars is not my first love. Uh, I, you know, 
took this couple of year hiatus to write novels about Mars. And it was really interesting. And I, I felt like I learned a lot about it, did a huge amount of research, did a lot of calculations on how to make, you know, uh, how to make a, a deep space rendezvous uh, between two ships that were originally not planned to rendezvous. Uh, but I did not, you know, I have not tried to keep up with that because there's just too much to know about Mars and, and I have other fish to fry. Mm. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that it was your study in apologetics that really informed some of your writing as well as the science background. And that's something I, I wonder about a lot. Like how is, how is Christian faith intersect with space travel? Any thoughts about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I know Christians, honest Christians can disagree about the, you know, the age of the universe. Uh, I lean towards the idea that the universe is, you know, 13 billion years old. The universe has been around for a long time and it may be around for a very long time. Uh, we don't know exactly how things are going to play out, but I, I would say as long as there are people, there will be Christians. And as long as there are Christians, there will be faith. And so wherever those people go, if, if, you know, if humanity lasts for thousands of years from now, millions of years, maybe even billions of years, they will be Christians. We don't know exactly how things are going to end. Uh, so it's hard to see, you know, in, in detail how things are going to play out, but I think there will always be Christians where, wherever they, wherever humans go. And so I know that's probably not a great answer, but <laughs> that's, that's all I got. Well, that's one of the best parts of oxygen that I enjoyed. And especially as at that time, an older uh, teenage homeschooled student, mm -hmm. uh, your themes of having Valkyrie represent the Christian faith while also engaging just naturally with the world of science and presumed agnosticism or atheism. And then, of course, some very human struggles, especially with uh, Bob uh, being not sure what to think about uh, this uh, this beautiful woman who's an astronaut and very scientifically minded and, and accomplished, and yet also a person of faith. I mean, that that really struck me, and I appreciated the gentility that you and uh, John Olson uh, had while engaging with those. It, it even when you got to the stuff about you know, possible microscopic life on Mars, you know, the material that I had been enjoying at the time presumed that there couldn't be. Uh, we'll just come out and say it. It was Answers in Genesis, you know, presuming that alien life would overthrow the creation paradigm. I no longer. Right agree that it would, although I'm still a believer in creation, uh, that was more in the fifth man. And, uh, I actually learned about, uh, the fifth man. I think it was actually, it was, I mean, there was internet, you know, but there wasn't a whole lot of action on the internet in right. bulletin boards, early 2000. Yes. Yeah, so some bulletin boards, you know, but not a lot. Of, nope. No blogs that I can recall. I literally got a postcard mailed to my house or my parents' house <laughs> right. from uh, from the uh, family Christian stores. You may remember that. And I'm like, how did you all know that I would love this? Uh, but now I know there's a sequel. Hurrah. And I went out and got it. Uh, things have changed a little bit, uh, more so I mean, perhaps in the Christian retail industry than even in the space program. I'm just curious, uh, you know, maybe getting slightly behind the scenes here. What else has changed in that world of Christian fiction, uh, Christian-made sci-fi, at least for how we learn about it and how we find it. Yeah, well, the you know the whole Christian science fiction fantasy world has just uh, opened up radically since then. So, uh, in the late '90s, 
if you were writing Christian science fiction or fantasy, you were just doomed. Okay, there was there was no place that uh, you know none of the publishers wanted to talk to you unless you were writing young adult stuff because it's okay for children to think about this sort of thing. But adults, <laughs> of course, stuff, adults yeah. are not. Uh, <laughs> they put away childish things, right? And science fiction and fantasy are childish things. Yeah, we, so, we have minds of metal yeah. and wheels now. We no longer care for growing things. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, 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 but Steve Lobby. You know, uh, the the editor at, at Bethany House, who uh, first acquired Kathy Tires and her Firebird series, and then um, a year later began acquiring the Oxygen series with me and John. And then a year after that, uh, Karen Hancock and her book Arena and her, uh, 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 her other uh, fantasy novels, that changed things. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, that was sort of, that really opened the door to uh, you know, what we all like to call the weird stuff. Okay, and now, of course, any indie author can just publish whatever they feel like. So if you now go to the Christian science fiction fantasy section, you have, you know, uh, a plethora, and maybe two plethoras of stuff. There's, there's mm. uh, massively more choices now than there were uh, 20 years ago, uh, when we were just trying to figure out, you know, who we were and what we could write. Well, Lorehaven's mission is to find the best of those stories, uh, with so many stories available. Obviously some are not going to be so great, uh, but our mission is to find and review the best ones, uh, which leads me back to oxygen and the fifth man. Uh, we must talk again a little bit more about that life on Mars question. And I mentioned earlier about you know little the light touch of the apologetics in there, mostly applied in the context of the relationships of the human heroes in that series. Uh, in book one, uh, we glimpse uh, Christian protesters who are kind of in the background. Uh, they don't mm. come off too well. They are not too fond of the space program, which to me, by the way, was a, a very light touch and that proved very effective. You know, just a little seed planted in my head that, hey, you know, sometimes Christians don't look too great to the world, you know? Mm. In book two, though, of course, things get more heated. Uh, this is not message fiction. You all uh, don't think set out to say, hey, there's life on Mars and you Christians need to get with it. But it is a gentle challenge to our characters and, uh, and at least in, uh, to this reader that if we did find a fungus on Mars or microscopic life, that would not really challenge our faith in the creator God or the gospel. It, it could only help us appraise him more, which I think uh, Bob says at the last there. It's like, hey, that, doesn't it just make God more amazing if we find that he's uh, created some kind of life uh, beyond Earth? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, see, John and I both had similar experiences. You know, we were Christians in graduate school at major university. So he went to University of Wisconsin, Madison in biochemistry. Uh, I went to UC Berkeley, and we kind of both felt, I think, the same way that we're caught between two worlds. So we go to church, and and what we hear from a lot of the churchy people is those scientists are evil, right? They're all atheists. Okay, and then we go to to school, and we, what we kind of hear from a lot of the, you know, our colleagues is that those. Fundy Christians are all science haters. And, you know, there's some truth to both sides. And yet we both felt that there, there had to be a position, you know, in the middle. Because here we were, we were Christians, and yet we were hard scientists. And we wanted to, 
we we just wanted to be ourselves, and we kind of that's the way we portrayed Valkyrie, Valkyrie Jansen in our Mars series. So she is a biochemist. She's a Christian. Uh, she's a you know reasonably conservative Christian, but she's a good scientist too. So w- what we wanted to show is her struggle is the struggle of you know many many working Christian science scientists in the sciences. And, you know, at every university that you can go to, you can go to the physics department or the biochemistry department. And if you ask around enough, you will find that there are Christians on the faculty there, even in Berkeley, which I didn't realize initially when I went there, I I kind of felt like I'm dropping into this atheist world. It's not true. It's not true. One of the most prominent faculty members on in the Berkeley physics department when I was there was Charles Towns. That's Nobel laureate Charles Towns, ah. okay, the inventor of the laser Charles Towns, uh, who was a Christian. I didn't know that at the time. You, you, you know, he didn't make a big deal about it. Every university you go to, you will find at the highest levels in um, the hard science departments, you will find a few Christians. And they all know this struggle, this this feeling that I'm caught between two worlds. It, it can get uncomfortable. And that is Valkyrie's story. She was caught, you know, literally between two worlds. I've definitely found that to be the case. And I, I follow a lot of astronomers, astrophysicists online. I, I've met a couple of them in person uh, that are believers. And yeah, they've they've all shared that sentiment, but it is really amazing to see people of faith represented in these sciences because uh, one of the stories I grew up loving but kind of hating was Contact by Carl Sagan, mm-hmm. which sort of pitted the, uh, at least on one level, it pitted the religious fundamentalists against the scientists, although there is the character that falls in love with the main character who's a kind of a defrocked priest or whatever. Right. And I grew up kind of thinking what you did, Randy, which is it's not true. You know, these don't have to be at odds. And there's a professor of astrophysics that I've mentioned before, Dr. Sarah Salviander. And she did this presentation where she said, you look at all the great scientists throughout history, they were all Christians or at least theists. So science belongs to us. (laughs) I just love that kind of spirit that she has. So I love that you just unapologetically made this book about a mission to Mars and you put all the science research in it because why not? Why should we just hand over all of that to, uh, to unbelievers? Why shouldn't we have our own stories and our own science fiction? Right. Zach, you may have seen one of my favorite t-shirts just says simply on it, God created science. And I think that goes back to what we've been exploring in our Epic Resurrection series is that the idea of stewarding the earth, of managing its resources as regents of the creator himself in order to reflect his image includes the very idea of science and technology, not exploiting the earth's resources on behalf of God, but stewarding these resources and figuring out the secrets and putting together mathematics and physics and other disciplines and making tools and devices to transmit stories and communications and all of that is an idea that God made, not humans, certainly not the devil. It's not hopelessly stained by sin. And in my view, humans are going to go on doing that even into eternity because just that idea of science glorifies God. There can be bad ideas. There can be 
bad motives, sinful motives for doing science. But even in this world, which groans under the influence of sin, there is still that common grace that God has put in the world. The sun shines on the righteous and the evil alike. Even bad guys can do good things, and that's all for the glory of God. We don't need to fear science or call them all a bunch of pagan, elitist uh, God-haters who won't let you leave the house. <laughs> Nowadays, that debate just keeps coming back, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. We've got to have that biblical view that, uh, that science is God's idea and that we are blessed and can worship him by practicing this. Uh, Randy, where can people find out more about Crown of Thorns and your other books uh, connect with you socially, distantly uh, in the future? Well, my main website would be uh, at ingermanson.com, I-N-G-E-R-M-A-N-S-O-N.com. So um, just take all the suffixes, you know, and slam them together. And that's that's my name. Um, and um, I also have a website for writers at advancedfictionwriting.com. Uh, but if you're interested in my fiction, it's it's all at ingermanson.com. I do have a slight Facebook presence, essentially nothing on um, uh, Twitter or any of the other social media. That sounds wise. Yeah, uh, you do what you can do. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Randy. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Well, thanks for having me, you guys. Really enjoyed it. I look forward to doing it again sometime. Again, uh, ingermanson.com, as in son of Inger. Man, it's son of Ingerman, ingermanson.com. Uh, it's not uh, Ingerman and Sons, it's one ingermanson.com. Crown of Thorns is out now, and uh, I think you can still get Oxygen, The Fifth Man, uh, The Premonition, the Retribution, a bunch of other Andy's books. Right. Uh, do go check those out. They are amazing. All right. Well, let's hear from you fantastic fans out there. Stephen, we got a lot of messages in from an LGM. Can you read those to us? Yes, indeed. Uh, this person says, quote, my first taste of fantastical fiction was when my dad and I read The Hobbit together when I was in third grade. I finished The Lord of the Rings in high school and reread it for a college course where our final was to go see Return of the King opening weekend. I will never lose my love for Tolkien, even though I'm more of a sci-fi fan now. End quote. I can certainly empathize, and oh, how I remember those wonderful college days when the Lord of the Rings films were in theaters. LG names other stories like A Wrinkle in Time and two Star Trek series. Uh, then they say, quote, Arena by Karen Hancock. I read it over the summer of my freshman year of college and couldn't believe Christians wrote good sci-fi. Arena gave me hope that I could write Christian sci-fi and it would find an audience. I recently sent the author an email thanking her for such a cool story that I'm convinced will stick with me until I die. End quote. I remember reading Arena as well. And yes, that was a really good one there. Uh, also, it looks like LG also left us this five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Quote, I love Lorehaven in general, and this podcast is just one more reason to love it. So many cool topics that no one else is talking about. End quote. Thank you so much for that encouragement, LG. Really helps us keep going. You know, Stephen, what I love about getting this listener feedback is I get to learn about all these books I never would have heard about otherwise. And so I'm going to have to put Arena on my already too massive to be read pile. But if, man, if this is something that LG says will be remembered and, you know, for the rest of their life, like I, I probably should check it out. Uh, we got another fantastical reader origin story from Jesse. This is actually a friend of mine. So this is really fun. He says, quote, my earliest fantastical story that blew me away happened when I was nine-ish years old. A now well-known movie came out called Jurassic Park. 
And to a young boy with a very active and well-used imagination, it was the greatest movie that ever was and will be. I saw it in the theater with my best friend for his birthday. My parents didn't know. Seeing dinosaurs come to life and having the thrill of interacting with them and escaping from their jaws blew me away. They truly did bring dinosaurs to life and did it in a really believable way. This movie helped stretch my imagination and greatly helped influence my curiosity toward visual storytelling, end quote. Yeah, and I happen to know that Jesse is a video editor, and so that's really neat to see how that role, that movie, played a part in the role that he plays now. And, you know, I always want to know what uh, what was different about the book and the movie. I haven't read the book, Stephen, but of course I've seen that movie probably a million times. I actually have the book, but I haven't read it yet. And to you, our listener, if you would like to share your story of how you became a fantastical reader, please send that to podcast at lorehaven.com or go to our website, lorehaven.com, and there's many ways to leave us a note there. Next on Fantastical Truth, another enemy from another movie once said that humans are a virus, and lately we've heard similar statements during the pandemic. By contrast, as some people, even a certain leader of the Catholic Church, have spoken about the earth in some very personal terms. How should Christians view the environment and discern stories that want us to view creation in particular or possibly even mystical ways? Thank you for joining us on this journey to the alternate future of this mission to Mars. We're going to keep time and space traveling and bring it all back to you to enjoy in the present as we keep on seeking and finding fantastical truth.